Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday night. Um, Wednesday before Yom Kippur, and um, I didn't get around to doing any bio this week, but I promised Ari Elbaum, or actually his father, uh, that I would do one for them. Uh, that's Howard Elbaum's father, whose yard site is, I think, the day after tomorrow. And since I'm so close with the Elbaums and so forth, so I said I'll do it. And Ari even, as Ari is the grandson of the Nifter, so uh, uh, he said I should do the Kabayashar which I thought I had done, I was sure of it, but he said no. And he knows my website stuff better than anybody else. I still haven't been able to raise the money to get somebody to pay somebody to organize the website properly, but um, you know, I don't know how that's done. But maybe one day it'll happen. Um, I mean, anyway, so uh, I am not going to, uh, if they ever, I owe the Elbams a lot. Let's put it this way. They help me a lot. They're very good friends. So therefore, if he wants to do the Kabayosha, I'll do it. This is um, in memory of Avram Menachem. Let me read the Nusach here. Avram Menachem ben Ravisa Gehuda, Manny Elbaum, that's, in other words, that's Howard's father, who was born in Krakow, the family originally from near Lublin. He was born in 1911, okay. That means one year older than my mom. He was in the studying yeshiva there, came to America in 1927, and immediately go to work very hard to support his parents and siblings. Well, you know. <laughs> we forget a hundred years ago there was no social security with no unemployment insurance there was no welfare it didn't exist he's uh he's the oldest of five kids he owned a gas station in queens oh interesting he was very scrupulous and honest in his business dealings well i'm not gonna get you far in new york his son had a first grade teacher who wanted to buy tires for a car outside the rationing system in world war ii but he was too honest and wouldn't break the law so she took it out on the kid and mistreated him see that yeah, see that? Um, that's why the Elbams ended up in Baltimore. <laughs> anyway, he passed away. The Nifter passed away in 1967 by a heart attack at the age of 56. So therefore, he never got to meet his daughter's long grandchildren. That's sad. And I can only say, uh, I know Howard, his son, and uh, he's as honest as the day is long. So as, you know what they say in Poland, the tree doesn't far from... The, how's it? Po- the tree doesn't fall far from the apple. That's how he said in Poland. So uh, if he, if 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 Howard is a model uh, character, then I can tell who his father was. So Neshama Shavuot as I said before, I feel very close with Mishpachas Elbaum, and um, and very happy to you know um, to accommodate them. The Kava Yasha is a is a Tzviosh number with a big rabbi uh, in Poland in the 1600s. Second of the 1600s. That doesn't mean anything to you. <laughs> I know that. Uh, but Poland was a very interesting place to live at that time with the plus and minuses. Um, now, our hero was a member of the uh, rabbinic elite. Otherwise, you'd never heard about him. You never would hear about him. I would be, probably wouldn't be doing a podcast on him. And he wrote a very famous sefer. But he himself um, was born at the wrong time in the wrong place. He was born in Poland, the kingdom of Poland, of course. 
think in Vilna, if I remember correctly, in 1650. Hear what I said? 1650. What does 1650 have to do with Poland? Well, the Xeris Chalm Malnitsky was 1648-1649. He was born right in the middle of the Kazakh massacres, not in the eastern part exactly where Chmelnitsky was killing everybody, but um, uh, but nevertheless, everybody was terrified. And the Kazakhs did raid in 1640-50 near Vilna, if I remember correctly. The Poles fought him back. It was a very complicated story. If you want the good details on this, it's actually a book came out now in English a couple years ago by Professor Teller, who I like very much, called Rescue to Surviving Souls, The Great Refugee Crisis, 17th Century, which was uh, uh, gotten for me from uh, Israel from my uh, very uh, favorite farm junkie, uh, Bernie Liebtag, Zolarzan Gesund and Stark, and I should have a Gemar Chasibitovo, him and Susan, and um, he has, he, he's a very good historian. But anyway, the Kazakh stuff raided near uh, 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 Vilna, and uh, the father of our hero ran away, so our hero was a baby, uh, ran away to Lublin. That turned out to be a mistake, and how should anybody know that? Why? The Kazakhs didn't get to Lublin, but the Russians entered the war, and they did. So it's like Putin, you understand? This is Russian 1655 and said he massacred the Jewish community in Lublin. So basically, he went from the frying pan to the fire, so to speak. How should he know? I mean, the truth is, the same thing happened in Vilna. You get what I'm saying? If you lived in the 1650s, I'll say it again, that's the wrong time to live. If they had lived decades earlier in Poland, it was the golden age of Polish Jewry. But he lived in the late 1640s, 1650s, 1660s, into the 1670s, which is when our hero was growing up, because he's born in 1650, that's the wrong time to be in that place, okay? Uh, and uh, so he was also part of this, uh, uh, So let me put it this way. He was a baby, but his family was subject to the massacre. His sisters were killed. His father was beaten up. And his father was a famous rabbi. If you're in yeshivish, you heard of Berchaz HaZevach, you know, or the Chubas Amunishmul. I think I did him. i tell you the truth. My memory is strange. I think I did him once, the Amunishmul. Famous Shalos and Shubas Sefer. He was a big goddle of the 1600s, and he was a rabbi in many towns. One of the reasons many towns, because he was running away from Poland to this place, to that place, to, to Moravia, to Frankfurt. He ended up by the Yekis in Frankfurt. Isn't it something? He was a rabbi in Frankfurt. Uh, and Birchaz HaZevach is a very chash of a sefer on Kachim. And, uh, you know, if you're yeshivish, you, you know about it. And uh, very chash And uh, what do you call it? Which wasn't so common, by the way, in the 1600s to write on Kachim. You know, there were real autonomous courts and communities. Most of the people concentrated on Chosha Mishpat and things like that. I don't blame them, Ebenezer, because they had practical shelves all the time and the Amunish is full of that. But nevertheless, he obviously was a great scholar. It goes without saying. And so the hero we're talking about, which is his son, the name of our hero is Svi Hirsch Kaidnur. The father's name was Aaron Shmuel. So uh, the son, you know, was the son of one of the Gedoli Ador. But boy, did they have a lot of bad luck. And I'm telling you, they lived in the wrong time, the wrong place. Here, I'm looking in Teller's book. Listen to this. Um, this is the father of our hero. So he was, he's talking about the Lublin massacre by the, by the Russians, not the Cossacks, by the Russians. In 1655, he knows the Jewish community was massacred. And the father, who was this big goddo, the Birch and all the rest, had said, I remained alone, languishing with a broken leg, lame and crippled, 
When God destroyed the Polish and Lithuanian Kehillahs, everything I valued was taken from me. All my wealth and possessions, my family, two little girls murdered as martyrs. Those Russians just chopped them in half, you know. And the holy books I had written were all destroyed and burned. In fear, I thought, I had been cut off from the land of the living, for I was tossed onto the open road, defiled and filthy. Those they beat the heck out of him and thought he's dead, basically, or dying, and they threw him, threw him, tossed him onto a road, rolling in the blood of the murdered martyrs who had given up their souls to die. I was starving and so thirsty that my tongue stuck to my palate. Naked I was and barefoot, even bare buttocked. Those they stripped him, for they stripped me of clothes, loving nothing but my undershirt, literally the undershirt. The enemy brought me to be killed many times, and I stretched out my neck like a lamb to the slaughter. But somehow I didn't get killed, you know. God in his mercy kept me alive today, uh, 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 you know, um, among the survivors. That's in the intro to the Birch HaZevach, okay, which he wrote 15 years later. So the bottom line is, uh, that was a bad time to live. And our hero, when he writes this for him, he talks about the fact that when he was a kid, he remembers the massacre as an older best of it. Now, he grew up with a father like that. Uh, if you know the career of the father, he ran away to Moravia. In other words, and I've talked about this, I can't remember, not that long ago. I, 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 I'm trying to remember in whose biography, also in the 1600s, a number of famous rabbis from Poland fleeing the Chmielnitsky business ran away to the next country over in Central Europe, which was the Habsburg Empire, and specifically in the Kingdom of Bohemia, which was the Habsburg Empire. And in the 1600s, the Kingdom of Bohemia was fairly large because it's the size today of the Czech Republic, plus the whole big province of Silesia, which today is part of Poland. So without going into all the details, only those of you who are interested in geography will look up the maps. It was a, a nice little piece of land. And basically the Kingdom of Bohemia was composed of three areas, Silesia, Bohemia, and Moravia. And there were a lot of little Jewish communities all over Moravia. And as far as they're concerned, it's like, uh, it's a little bit like, a, like like New York in the 40s and 50s. You could, I mean, if you wanted to be this type, you know, you could have a show and somebody is running away from Europe from the Holocaust or survivors comes over here. He's like a Bucky Bashas, you know what I mean? Like he's a big Tamachacham. And some of these rabbis uh, didn't have the good fortune to become big Rosh Hashibas and stuff like that. And they became rabbis of synagogues in the Bronx you know, in Brooklyn and wherever, like that. You know, that's how their career. Nothing nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying the guy is bigger than the stellar, so to speak. And that's what happened with our hero. He was around in a bunch of little communities in Moravia. And he was in Nicholsburg, which was a cultural community. And he ended up, as I say, in Frankfurt. But interestingly, by the 1670s, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, Poland had quieted down. The peace treaty had been signed. The uh, enemy uh, invaders had withdrawn without going through all the details. The Cossacks, the Russians, the Swedes, the Prussians, and all the rest of it. And uh, and our and, and, uh, kind of went back to Poland, where he died. So our hero is growing up during a chaotic period. Uh, he learns with the father, obviously. Uh, and he was a Talmud Chacham. He edit, edited, I, if I remember correctly, he edited the Birch HaZezevach and the Amunishmol and some of these other things, which means you have not to learn in order to do that. Uh, and he published them. And uh, he ended up as a young and he married a, a rich girl, I remember, from Frankfurt. But he end, he went back with his father to Poland, and he ended up in Vilna. 
Now, that means he's a Chashav Abalabas in Vilna because he has a rich father-in-law and he engaged in business and he knows how to learn. Here, he uh, came across or he got into a fight with the Richie Riches. I don't, nobody knows exactly what it was, but boy, they were the worst type of the Richie Riches that I've talked about from time to time. And uh, they marched on him and uh, he was thrown into jail. He says himself in the introduction to the Kavayasher, into a Polish dungeon for four years. Think about what I just said. A Polish dungeon for four years. That's what the Jews did to him. Get it? These are who our people are when they're corrupted by wealth. And uh, eventually he got out. <coughs> and he ran away. And he came eventually to Frankfurt. Naturally he ran away. And he, and one of his rebbeim when he was young, and I've never understood this, was the famous Rabbi Yosef of Minsk. The reason I understand it is our hero is supposed to be the student and Yosef Mintz is supposed to be the Rebbe. And the story goes and he admits it in the beginning of the Kabayashar that he's plagiarizing a lot of what's in the book. They didn't have the... And, and, I'm not, and I'm not saying in a bad way. According to what happened he had a Rebbe who wrote this uh, Kabbalistic Musar book as we would say today full of stories and mices and things like that. But he died young. And he never published a book. And our hero was a student of his. And he had like a copy of the manuscript. And he rewrote it. You know, touching it up here, lengthening it here, shortening it there. He says, I was Myrick, I'm a concert, and so forth. And published it as his own work called the Kavayasha. And it really took off. And the original work of the Rebbe wasn't published till many, many decades later. And wasn't as well written and never took off. You've never heard of it. It's called Yisod Yosef. You've never heard of it. So it's funny, the history of, of how books work. The student actually made the Rebbe's content more popular than ever would have been on its own. Because as we shall see, the Kavayosh is one of the most famous and popular books, most often reprinted books in Jewish history, which is really something. Uh, if I ever tell somebody, you ever heard of Tzvihosh uh, Kaidnover? No, they think I'm talking about the Kaidnover Rebbe or something like that, right? Kaidnover is a town near Minsk. Uh, but uh, if you say you heard of the Kabayasha, oh, I heard of the Kabayasha, you know. So sometimes a person can become subsumed in his personal identity in, in that of the book, which really takes off and hits the charts. And that's what happened to our hero today. So he lived from 1650 to like seven, <coughs> excuse me, 1712, I think it was, you know. So it wasn't that long of a life, but... Um, but long enough for him to publish his book in Hebrew and in Yiddish and see it fly off the charts So uh, as a Musser book. So it's just interesting how these things go because no one's heard of the guy, but everybody's heard of the Safer. Now, um, after he got out of the jail, he ran <clears throat> back to Germany. Um, you have to understand, at that time, I'm using the word Yakis. Yakis didn't exist. The German Jews and the Polish Jews really was the same. The accent was a little different. Uh, the Minhagen were slightly different. The Yiddish was slightly different, but basically it was the same. And there was a lot of intercourse and interplay and intermarriage between Polish Jews on the one hand and Moravia and, 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 and German Jews, Rhineland on the other hand. You don't have this rigid distinction. That came later on in the 19th century with the rise of nationalism. The Jews sort of imitated the same nationalism and said this was a Galtziana and that was a Litvak and this was a Yaki and all that kind of stuff. Didn't used to be like that, particularly 
in the time Tom in the 17th century. Uh, the Jews tried to live their lives the best they could. All around them, Europe was constantly at war. I've told you that. Every single year in the 1600s and 1700s, there was a war going on somewhere in Europe. There really was. You know, I could show off and tell you, you know, where it was in this year and that year, but I'm not going to do that. And uh, if you're Jewish, you simply like ducked, you know what I'm saying? And you tried to live your life the best you could. And you tried to move wherever was possible to, you know, the, you could make a living or something like that. And you hoped you didn't run into some kind of Cossack massacre. So in those years, from the 1650s on, Poland was like dangerous and Germany was safe. Later on, it was the other way around. You know, this is how the Gaulus works. Okay? Now, as I said before, our hero came to Frankfurt. Um, he had his father's him. His father died kind of suddenly at a rabbinical meeting. And uh, I'm talking about the Berkhaz Zevach. And the son uh, devoted himself to... First of all, his, his rich father-in-law was in Frankfurt. So that means... Parnassus was okay. Second of all, um, he put himself to publishing the father's works, which indeed took off. The Amunah Shemul is a classic, and so is Ferchus Zevach, among Tamir Chachanan. And then he uh, wanted to publish. He wasn't so young. I mean, he published it when he was in his 50s. This work that he had from his Rebbe that he re redid, right? He re I mean, he says this in the introduction. And if you... Uh, let me, I have in front of me my good old Kabayasha with the Nakudos that I bought just when it came out long ago. Now there are better editions. I mean, there's a Manukad. The Kabayasha is so popular, I'll say later, it's online Manukad, you know? It's online Manukad. Uh, that is to say, wiki text, you know. Haikartashim, uh, Al-Khashalam. He says over here, um, where did I get the content from my book? Um... To lead them on the ways of life, on the Mayim Chaim. As I said for my Rebbeim, first of my father, and Mishar Rabosi Gunarts, Vasher Kibalti Yotzakti, Sharisi Derech Atobi Yoshim Rav Muvak, and I had a Rebbe Muvak, Rav Yosef, Rav Hagon Manoch, Rav Yudu Yudel, that's the uh, uh, Chief Rabbi of Minsk, as I said before in Dubnov, Av Beis in Minsk. Bishal Sisi, but some is Dvorov, and I drank his words thirstily. In other words, um, I, I, I uh, you know, remember what he said, what he taught us. Kashech to Bechel Gashini. Hein, hein, Mamish Dvorov. There's parts over here that are literally plagiarized from him. Achlefam, Hosafti, Nov Mechshali, but I added a little bit of some Chisarti, and I sometimes edited it out a little bit. I did this so that they their sips the same those became they should be alive even in their death. So I'm telling you this as a matter of what you call editorial honesty. I'm not really plagiarizing, I'm admitting that I'm taking um, you know, from others, just reworking it. I'll call Perak Perigatin Til Manofin Mahdi, and I and I, you know, therefore pray to Hashem that it should be Masliach. So uh, it's very interesting that somebody writes like that. And as they say before, he suffered very heavily from these bad richy riches, and that's why um, the Kavayasher. I did it once. One one year, I read it as my Musar book, you know, uh, because the chapters are not long. But the only thing is, everything's a quote from the Zohar. You know, he's always bringing the Zohar stuff. So you have to have an edition that has this, the translation of the Zohar into uh, Hebrew, 
Uh, I have an early one, which is in the back. I'm sure the later ones are in the front. Now I know uh, somebody in my shul had a couple years ago, they translated Kaviyosha in English. I don't know how well they did it. Um, but I'm going to read to you a chapter he has on the Richie Riches, what he calls the Katsinim and the Nassim, because he saw firsthand what's going on over here. Loma Nikrishmam Shal Rosham Nassim, why they called Nasis, which is a high honor. If he if he if he conducts himself well, if the rich guy conducts himself well, then he's exalted. Nasi, you know, say malamala, and his nisham also. But if he doesn't conduct himself well, nisim baruch, then there's a passing nisim baruch which means he's just like wind. You understand? Because the wind comes and goes, and after a while, you never knew it was there in the first place. All these rich guys have their five minutes of fame, as we say today, and then they're gone. Shinanoka, sure, if he doesn't act right, the way a Manig Israel should act, and if you don't take stuff off the Jews the way Moshe Armenia took stuff off of them, if he acts arrogantly towards them, piss him over him. All these rich, rich guys just, you know, disappear from the scene. And their children and grandchildren aren't rich anymore. So no, they lose it all. And we see this happen to a lot of rich, riches, he says. This trap, because they're so arrogant. And they uh, terrify the people in the community under them. And they you know, they themselves lived a very luxurious lifestyle. And they don't pay their share of taxes. Because that's what the rich used to do. They would use their positions on the on the boards of the directors of the communities to make sure that the tax burden fell on everybody else who couldn't afford it and not on themselves who could. That's just what I said. They always want to be first in any covet. And they always look like they're self-satisfied. They look like they're having a ball. They have no sympathy with the sufferings of the masses. Nothing ever happens bad to them, so therefore they don't feel bad. And the regular community, who after all come from Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, they're crushed and they're destroyed. They go around without clothes. They go barefoot, they have unclothed because they have to pay such heavy taxes. Which the officials of the community, who are the servants of the rich riches, um, ruthlessly take from them. And the community tax collectors, the Jewish community tax collectors, enter the houses of the poor, and they grab whatever they want for non payment of taxes. And they leave the people there naked and without anything. And those that take their furniture, they take their clothes. These are these are the richy riches of yesterday. You wonder why I talk about them. They have public auctions where they sell them for a song. All they have left is not the bed, but the, the, the straw that the, where, the, where the bed was. And therefore they, they, they take away their blankets. They take away the things. They freeze to death in the winter. This is how our Jewish history went. And the poor people in the community. And by the way, when he says poor, it's like America with the, the tuition. He doesn't mean poor. He means 
the average Joe out there, we call middle class, who who gets killed by the you know the, the tuition payments and things like that. Uh, but it's much worse in the old country, and they sit and cry each one in their corner. If the rich would only help out and pay their fair share of the taxes, then it wouldn't be so heavy on the Beninim and the Aniim. Okay? And he goes on to say, plus the richy riches steal embezzle from public funds. That they take money, like we say today, from the public funds. Even though they don't need them, that's the point. You know what I mean? They're, they're rich. But they take the money from the public funds because they're the gabais of all these funds. And they use them to pay for weddings and give presents to their own children and uh, and, and sons and daughters and sons-in-law, daughters-in-law. Daughter-in-law. And this is Mamash Chomas and Yigir Kaab. Now, he could say all this because at the time he wrote this, he was already hundreds of miles away from Vilna. So the guys who really messed him over and put him in jail for four years, couldn't touch him anymore. So he could say the truth. I'll say it again with Vilna. Okay? So you think Vilna was such a fantastic place. Right? And such a person, it, it is said in heaven, this is a guy who eats Jewish blood and Jewish flesh. Right? And he's describing what happens in Shemayim. Then an angel precedes them when they die with all these clawless, vintolos and shmas, rachmon and litzam, mancha delay, and so on and so forth. Therefore, he begs, okay? Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read you the paragraph to give you a flavor of what the, what the, uh, what the Kavayosha is like. This is chapter 9, what I'm reading. Al kinyiros adam shumanagopinus, therefore, anybody who finds himself in a situation where he's a rich guy, and he's a leader in the community. He has to be merciful and not cruel. And especially the broken vessels, namely the poor people who are helpless. is interested in the Aniyim. Because if you don't treat them right, then angels who are Makatrig bring all kinds of Xeris Rose on you. Now, you can be sure. In the 17th century, particularly, the rich people say this, Bull, if God really liked them, he wouldn't make them rich and poor. Like, like John Calvin, you know? And he tells the story from the Rizal, They were sitting in a field, and in that field was the, was the grave of the prophet Hosea. That's this week's Haftorah, as I mentioned the other day. Shuba Yisrael Hashem from Hosea. Ari, sister Tyra, and the Ari was giving one of his sister Torah drushes. And in the middle of the drusha, the Ari said, according to the story, For God's sakes, let's immediately put together some money, initially on show and send that money to a certain person on Oni who's near us. Darmokamploni lives in this in this house, that's the name of the Oni. Because he's sitting in his house right now, the Arizal said, and complaining to God over his poverty and his mistreatment. And his cries, the cries of a poor man who's being, you know, tortured, are rising all the way to the Kisya Covenant. And God is angry at the whole city of Tzvas. 
Shem Rachmalov, that nobody's having any pity on him, and God is going to destroy Tzfas, the Ari says, according to this story. And I hear the Karos, the herald in heaven, running around, announcing, So there's about to be a locust plague. They're going to eat up all the, the food. God is going to come by Kevin's eyes. No, no, no crops will be left. And we'll all starve to death. Therefore, let's immediately send some tzedakah, a substantial amount of tzedakah, this poor guy. Maybe we can bevat the gzera. And each guy gave money, it says. But also, and the Ari, it says, gave the money to one of his students, Rabbi coin. And he said, run to that guy's house and give him the money. And that's what he did. Okay? And he saw this uh, Rabbi Yitzchak, this the poor man crying at the at the door of his house. Why are you crying? And uh, and the poor guy said, He had a, a chavish al mayim. And you know, those days that you have to get from the well. And it broke and he and he can't afford to uh, get another to buy another uh, you know barrel or a, a jar. And he doesn't know what to do because he's so poor. And he also gave him the money and he was very happy and he blessed him. And that's how they saved the city. And while they were talking, right? Uh, and they saw in the distance a giant wind bringing a locust plague. And they all freaked out. And the Rizal said, And because what we just did, the Xero is bottle. So the wind, you know, like you see in the movies or something like that, you see a huge cloud of locusts, but instead of heading towards Tzfas, it immediately made a left turn and went out to the Mediterranean Sea. Right? And therefore nothing happened. And that's why you have to take care of the poor and... Uh, and and it goes on, uh, you know. Since this, I'll read the rest of this chapter to give you an idea of the flavor of the book. That God is the one who is their their dwelling place, and their uh, can always be found among the poor. This is like Balshemtavism before the Balshemtav lived. Okay, that's why Chazal say. If you give a proof to the Tony, you get six brachas, and Paisa Dwarm is brachas. But if you do it in a savior Panam Yafis way, in a respectful way, you get more brachas, you get 11. Because the poor person is always in anxiety that he doesn't have any money to meet the bills. Uh, right? And um, what's he saying over here? He would like to get a, a tova, and he can't. Think about the winter time. He's describing life. The rich guy is in a warm, big, well-built house. He's like a king in a winter palace. And he's got a tanu shalokham. But Oni, not only does he live in a dwelling full of holes, he, doesn't, he can't afford any, any fuel, like, uh, you know, like we say, any no heat. And since he can't ever get warm, and you know, this is in Europe, and the cold penetrates and breaks his nefesh, and that is, you know, it's biting cold. And when it rains, it's, uh, it's full of leaks. So it's, his life is a hell. 
Right? And you see that they don't make a revolution. Many of the poor are just from and they accepted Ba'avo. And when Shabbos comes, and when Shabbos comes, and really you should have a nice meal, as we all know in Shabbos, and of course the only can't afford it. Nevertheless, the only goes to Shul, and he thanks God for Shabbos. So look what a tzaddik he is. The rich, the rich guy can make a shidduch whoever he wants because he's rich. And the Oni doesn't have any money. He'll, he'll marry his children off to whoever he can. Even to a bum. And, you know, the 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 chassam won't have a reich to reich yira. It's like throwing his daughter to a lion. But what else can he do? You know, he wants to marry his daughter off. And he sees... Um, this is really life. He's in of Roach, Shabur Makab Bito. And he sees his poor daughter, who he had no marry, no choice but to marry off to this guy. And the guy's a wife beater, and she takes it because she's poor and you know she has no choice. She's stuck with this husband. Who can write down on paper the terrible tsar that this woman goes through and to her father goes to the Oni Soville? So therefore, Call Ani, if you are a poor person and you live through this life, you don't have to worry about Gehenna because you've got it down here. Okay? And therefore you have to take care of them and so on and so forth. So I'm simply trying to show you that, and he goes on to say, therefore it is a warning to the richie riches. Uh, that's an example that this is a Musser book, but it's very factual. It's very real. You know what I mean? In other words, it is full of, um, uh, the Kaviyashra is Kufbe's 102 chapters. And it's full of mices. And a lot of the mice have to do with Shadim and Mesa with Talesim. And like I say, a lot is from the Arizal, from the, uh, what do you call it, the, the Zohar. And it's scary. That's why it was such a, best, such a bestseller. The women hopped it up. I'm serious. He published it in Hebrew and then in, in, in Rabbinic Hebrew and then in um, Yiddish. And it, I, I think it was reprinted 50 times in Yiddish. Uh, you understand? That was up, everybody knows the Frum women from Eastern Europe. Is the Tzanarena and the Kavayasher, in Yiddish, both in Yiddish, you know, and these are the real from books. There are a lot of mices there that are baloney that are not true. It doesn't matter, you know. There's a scandalous story he has about the Ramban's wife and all this stuff. They're not true, but uh, when I say it doesn't matter, but they were vividly told and they came part of the Jewish folklore. And I'll tell you again, that's the old from kite, where if you don't do something, he's going to describe. How the malachim are going to beat you up, and how you're going to burn in hell, literally, and stuff like that. And uh, whoever reads the Kavayashar ends up screaming and crying, and a good time was had by all. This is the from kite of our ancestors, the Ashkenazic ancestors. Um, and a lot of stories end up among the Sfarnim, but they just plagiarize in different in different Sfardish books also. The Kavayashar, therefore, um, became one of the most popular books in Jewish history. It drives the non-from historians and folklorists and masculine crazy, and they always attacked the Kava Yasha, I understand why. And it's the opposite of rational and all that kind of stuff. It certainly is. But on the other hand, as I just read you from this chapter about the poor and the rich, he's spot on. His social criticism is a, is a bullseye. You understand? I mean, he told it like it was, and there was a lot of corruption in Jewish life. Now, he's not you know Vladimir Lenin or anything like that, but he calls for a frum uh, revolution. 
that people should follow what the Torah said. And the Torah said that the rich people should take care of the poor, and the poor should act nice to the rich people. Not that the rich people should dump on the poor the way they used to in Europe. In America, people don't understand this. In Europe, where his time, they were, uh, what's the right word? You know, people owned seats, and you couldn't sit in the rich guy's uh, area in Shoal, and, you know, and you didn't have a seat, and you never got an aliyah, and it was just terrible, you know. They, 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 they walked all over you. Uh, why? Money talks. You understand? Money talks. And you couldn't mess with them because obviously our hero must have messed with the, must have protested against something the rich did, which is why they had him thrown in jail. And let me tell you something. If he was there for four years, they did not figure he would live. You get it? I mean, he survived. And he said it was Sebrachim when it was all over because we're talking about a Polish jail dungeon in the 1600s. So, you know, he himself experienced firsthand, you know, uh, the, the, the suffering. But never, but he, but he was resilient, you know, and um, and therefore, it's not like the other Moser books. The other Moser books are, you know, the Silsi Sharim and the Shari Chuba and that sort of thing. They're very from in the sense that they talk about Ruchnias and all that. Now he does, but he also talks about a lot of social uh, injustices, and you know, believe you me, the Richie Riches would rather have you read the Silsi Sharim. Because you could talk about your neshama and Zerizas and Zahiras and Mishkal Hasidus. It's all theoretical. It's all very nice. To talk about what's really going on and who's got the money and who's in charge of the public funds. And listen, this is the way it is now. It's always like that. You know, you go to yeshiva, to a to a school or something like that. You don't know what happened with the money. And the board of directors runs run it. And they don't tell you how, how the money's being dispersed. Not really. And, you know... It's a nepotism. It's all this stuff that we see around us going on. The only thing is, what does the average person do? You have children to 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 to, to, to get school, so you just, you know you have no choice. You go along with it. But you know what 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 can you do? But it's a you know it's a rich man's world in that regard, and uh, there are good people that are rich, like he talks about. Also, he mentions that, and they're you know they and they're people who use their uh, wealth for the public good. But there's a lot of the other types. And Europe especially was a lot of the other types. And therefore, I think, me, myself, and I, I think that that's one of the reasons the, the Kavayosha took off. Because, yes, they liked the stories about the Shadim and the Mesim and the Talesim. And yes, they liked the stories. I mean, I can't believe anybody read the the parts. There's so many quotes from the Zohar over there. And in the early editions, they didn't have translations from the Zohar. So how could the average guy understand... When half the book saying it's in that funny Aramaic, you know what I mean? It's verbatim quotes from the Zohar. Uh, stories like the Rizal you can understand because it's written in Hebrew. Uh, but it didn't matter. A lot of these stories were, like I say, real zingers. And, um, and uh, you know, I was looking if he has anything in Yom Kippur. Not really. I myself happen to remember from, um, but he has a very interesting Hanukkah. I should really be doing this Hanukkah time. Because he said something like the Shabbos is more chashev than the Neiros Hanukkah, and uh, you know, is he? Because he, he, he's real from you know. So he said, "Don't you know, don't don't uh, misuse the Shabbos on the on the menorah and the Hanukkah menorah." Um, but he has on all Shabbos and all these other kind of things. And I would say, just in general, that your Jewish education is not complete if you never read the Kabbalah. One time, go ahead and do it, especially now that it's Menukah. It's online.
No, but it's like, you know, they, like I say, you can Google, I saw before, uh, you know, the whole wiki text and things like that. That tells you something, you see? Now, it's not written in language of the 20th century. It's written in very scary language of the 16th century, of the 17th century. And, you know, it's, it's these stories about the Mason and all the rest of it are there to make your hair stand on end. That's that's the point, you know? If you don't scream after you read a, a, a story or two, you're not normal. However, um, so what? You know, so what? And uh, if you, if you, it, it's not too often that somebody becomes subsumed in his, uh, in, in his book. Now he wrote some others for him. He never took off anywhere. I don't know, you know, some lumdish things, whatever. It's, it's not important because, you know, those are little details, which if this was a seminar, we could talk about it. But for this purposes, the other things that he wrote are not important. The Kabayashi was a home, uh, Grand Slam home run. And obviously he touched a button in the masses of Kal Yisrael. And it became, as I said before, uh, one of the most popular works. Uh, not today, because it's 300 years later, 400 years later, and a lot of other stuff is written, and more in the language of our time. But if you're interested in the classic Judaism of the early modern period, I don't think you can get a better example, literarily speaking, than the Kabayashi, because that's how people talk, that's how people thought. Okay? Now, he was super from, that's true, but that was considered a high virtue in that society, to be super from in that kind of a way. So that itself tells you a lot. Um, and so, uh, he, he, he got lucky in the sense that, you know, he, the man, the, the man and the time and everything came together. Now, there are a lot of anachronisms in there and things like this. He says the Ramban has a story, you know, the Pope says the Ramban, it's a, it's a Baba Master, Pope says the Ramban, your drasha was published recently. Do a publishing <laughs> in the Ramban's time in the 1200s. You know, he doesn't care about that. Don't look to this for, you know, scholarly accuracy, anything like this. Look to it for zingers. You understand? And I'm sure over the ages, a lot of Pirkei leaders and things like that have stolen stories, you know, from the Kavi Usher and made their 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 kids' uh, hair stand and then give them nightmares and things like that. But as I say, a good time was had by all because the Kavi Usher nevertheless remains a very beloved work among Kali Yisrael. And that it tells you something itself. If you want to see the, the mindset of our Ashkenazic ancestors, those who are Ashkenazic listening, uh, and not, you know, what you just read here and there, especially now with the art scroll era, and then you look at the Kabayosha and, and, and you see how he describes life. As I just showed you before, his description of the rich and the poor, um, who live side by side, and the rich don't do anything to alleviate the poor. Uh, think about that, by the way. You know, I have heat in my house, and you don't. Like, what the heck is that? If that happened in Baltimore, and I know a case or two when something like it happened, immediately people came together and got him heat. I mean, you can't live in Baltimore in the winter without heat, right? And Kalvachomer in, in Northern Europe. So how could somebody be like that, that I'm okay and I have plenty of wood and all the rest of it, and the guy down the block who's poor is, is freezing to death? I mean, you know, how, how, do, how, do you, how do you be like that? The answer is you can be like that, you understand? You can be like that. So uh, it was a cruel world once upon a time. And this is why Chazal say that one of the people who go burn straight in hell is Parnas Shematel Amy Yisrael at Shalosh Shem Shemaim. I think that's how it puts it over there. And uh, 
the Ramban calls them Malchi Hodu. They walk around like Maharajas, you know, because I'm rich. They have everybody kiss, kiss my fingers and so forth. But uh, but the Kaviyasha told it the way it was. Anyway, um, that's the main part. There's a lot of scholarship on where he got his stories from and all the rest. You don't need to know that. You know, it's not a seminar. Um, you know, which folklore did he get it out of and all the rest of it. A lot of it comes from the Zohar. A lot of it. Um, and, of course, he is a Talmud of a Talmud of a Talmud of a Talmud of the Rizal. That's who he is. So, And the Rizal died in the 1570s. He's born in 1650, not that long later. So he's coming up from that influence. And in his time, nothing from the Rizal had been published. It was all Kisviari. And so a lot of it was, you know, by word of mouth. This is the culture that was that was around at that time. Anyway, um, that gives you an insight. If you're interested in what I said today, you'll look online and you look up the Kabayashar, like I say, the wiki text, you can see the whole book inside Menukad and uh, and you can read it for yourself in Hebrew. I didn't even look if the Kabayashar is online in English. Maybe it is. Uh, I can't say that about any other book from that time. You can't tell me this is true of, of other farm from the 1600s. Not that I can think of. Okay, uh, certainly not the Lumjan stuff, but even the you know popular literature of the 1600s. As I said before, the only thing that approaches it is the is the um, Senarena, both of which were major cultural landmarks in Jewish history, and both of which were made fun of by people, you know, as uh, non-rational and this and that and the other bavmises, but uh, really spoke to the heart of Klal Yisrael, um, you know, in days past. Anyway, once again, I want to wish the Yelvan family that the Nisham Shavaliyah, I think it's Friday, it was Abba Menachem Ben Yitzhak Yehuda, Manny Yelvan, and I know he's an Olamemis, but, you know, he's obviously, uh, if he saw how his descendants are acting, he'd be very uh, pleased, and that's the best you can say for somebody. Hi, it's Wednesday night, um, Wednesday before Yom Kippur, and... Um, I didn't get around to doing any bio this week, but I promised Ari Elbaum, or actually his father, uh, that I would do one for them. Uh, that's Howard Elbaum's father, whose yard site is, I think, the day after tomorrow. And since I'm so close with the Elbaums and so forth, so I said I'll do it. And Ari even, as Ari is the grandson of the Nifter, so uh, uh, he said I should do the Kabayashar, which I thought I had done. I was sure of it, but he said no. And he knows my website stuff better than anybody else. I still haven't been able to raise the money to get somebody to pay somebody to organize the website properly, but um, you know, I don't know how that's done. But maybe one day it'll happen. Um, I mean, anyway, so uh, I'm not going to... Uh, if they ever... I owe the Elbams a lot. Let's put it this way. They help me a lot. They're very good friends. So therefore, if he wants to do the Kabayosh, I'll do it. This is... Um, in memory of Avraham Menachem, let me read the Nusach here. Avraham Menachem ben Rav Yitzhak Yehuda, Manny Elbaum, that's, in other words, that's Howard's father, who was born in Krakow, the family originally from near Lublin, and he's born in 1911, okay. That means one year older than my mom. He was in, he studying yeshiva there, came to America in 1927, had immediately go to work very hard to support his parents and siblings. Well, you know. <laughs> we forget a hundred years ago there was no social security there was no unemployment insurance there was no welfare it didn't exist he's, uh, he's the oldest of five kids he owned a gas station in Queens oh interesting he was very scrupulous and honest in his business dealings well I'm not going to get you far in New York 
his son had a first grade teacher who wanted to buy tires for a car outside the rationing system in World War II. But he was too honest and wouldn't break the law, so she took it out on the kid and mistreated him. See that? Yeah, see that? Um, that's why the Elbams ended up in Baltimore. <laughs> anyway, he passed away. The Nifter passed away in 1967 by a heart attack at age of 56. So therefore, he never got to meet his daughter's long grinchel, and that's sad. And I can only say, uh, I know Howard, his son, and uh, he's as honest as the day is long. So uh, you know what they say in Poland, the tree doesn't far from how's it? The tree doesn't fall far from the apple. That's how they say it in Poland. So uh, if he, if out if if Howard is a model uh, character, then I can tell who his father was. So Neshama Shemalia. As I said before, I feel very close with Mishpachas Elbaum and um, am very happy to, uh, you know, um, to accommodate them. The Kava Yasha is a, is a Tzviyosh Koyin number with a big rabbi uh, in Poland in the 1600s. Second of the 1600s. That doesn't mean anything to you. <laughs> I know that. Uh, but Poland was a very interesting place to live at that time with the plus and minuses. Um... Now, our hero was a member of the uh, rabbinic elite. Otherwise, you'd never heard about him. You never would hear about him. I would be probably wouldn't be doing a podcast on him. And he wrote a very famous sefer. But he himself um, was born at the wrong time in the wrong place. He was born in Poland, the kingdom of Poland, of course. I think in Vilna, if I remember correctly, in 1650. Hear what I said? 1650. What does 1650 have to do with Poland? Well, Xeris Chalmelnitsky was 1648 and 1649. Tachbatat. He was born right in the middle of the Cossack massacres, not in the eastern part exactly where Chalmelnitsky was killing everybody, but um, uh, but nevertheless, everybody was terrified. And the Cossacks did raid in 1648-50 near Vilna, if I remember correctly. The Poles fought him back. It was a very complicated story. If you want the good details on this, it's actually a book came out now in English a couple years ago by Professor Teller, who I like very much, called Rescue to Surviving Souls, The Great Refugee Crisis, 17th Century, which was uh, uh, gotten for me from uh, Israel from my uh, very uh, favorite farm junkie, uh, Bernie Liebtag, Zolarzan Gesund and Stark, and um, I should have a Gemar uh, Chassi him and Susan, and... Um, he has, he, he's a very good historian. But anyway, the Kazakh stuff raided right near, uh, uh, Vilna, and, uh, the father of our hero ran away, so our hero was a baby, uh, ran away to Lublin. That turned out to be a mistake, and how should anybody know that? Why? The Kazakhs didn't get to Lublin, but the Russians entered the war, and they did. So it's like Putin, you understand? This is Russian 1655. And said so he massacred the Jewish community in Lublin. So basically, he went from the frying pan to the fire, so to speak. How should he know? I mean, the truth is, the same thing happened in Vilna. You get what I'm saying? If you lived in the 1650s, I'll say it again, that's the wrong time to live. If they lived decades earlier in Poland, it was the golden age of Polish Jewry. But he lived in the late 1640s, 1650s, 1660s, into the 1670s, which is when our hero was growing up, because he's born in 1650. That's the wrong time to be in that place, okay? Uh, and uh, so he was also part of this, uh, uh, So let me put it this way. He was a baby, but his family was subject to the massacre. His sisters were killed. His father was beaten up. 
his father was a famous rabbi. If you're in yeshivas, you heard of Birchaz Hazevach, you know, or the Chubas Amunah Shmuel. I think I did him. I tell you the truth, my memory is strange. I think I did him once, the Amunah Shmuel, famous Shalos and Shubas Sefer. He was a big godol of the 1600s, and he was a rabbi in many towns. One of the reasons many towns, because he was running away from Poland to this place, to that place, to, to Moravia, to Frankfurt. He ended up by the Yekis in Frankfurt. Isn't it something? It was a rabbi in Frankfurt. Uh, and Birchaz HaZevach is a very hush of a safer on Kachim. And, uh, you know, if you're yeshivish, you, you know about it. And uh, very hush And uh, what he called? Which wasn't so common, by the way, in the 1600s to write on Kachim. You know, there were real autonomous courts and communities. Most of the people concentrate on Kachim Mishpat and things like that. I don't blame them, Ebenezer, because they had practical shelves all the time and the Amunah Shemul is full of that. But nevertheless, he obviously was a great scholar. It goes without saying. And so the hero we're talking about, which is his son, the name of our hero is Tzvi Hirsch Kaidnur. The father's name was Aaron Shmuel. So uh, the son, you know, was the son of one of the Gedoli Ador. But boy, did they have a lot of bad luck. And I'm telling you, they lived in the wrong time, the wrong place. Here, I'm looking in Teller's book. Listen to this. Um, this is the father of our hero. So he was, he's talking about the Lublin massacre by the, by the Russians, not the Cossacks, by the Russians. In 1655, knows the Jewish community was massacred, and the father, who was this big godol, the Birch Zevach and all the rest, had said, I remained alone, languishing with a broken leg, lame and crippled, when God destroyed the Polish and Lithuanian Kehillahs. Everything I valued was taken from me, all my wealth and possessions, my family, two little girls murdered as martyrs. Those the Russians just chopped them in half, you know? And the holy books I'd written were all destroyed and burned. In fear, I thought... I had been cut off from the land of the living, for I was tossed onto the open road, defiled and filthy. Those they beat the heck out of him, thought he's dead, basically, or dying, and they threw him, threw him, tossed him onto a road, rolling in the blood of the murdered martyrs who had given up their souls to die. I was starving and so thirsty that my tongue stuck to my palate. Naked I was and barefoot, even bare buttocked. Those they stripped him, for they stripped me of clothes, loving nothing but my undershirt, literally the undershirt. The enemy brought me to be killed many times, and I stretched out my neck like a lamb to the slaughter. But somehow I really didn't get killed, you know. God in his mercy kept me alive today, uh, 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 you know, um, among the survivors. That's in the intro to the Birch HaZevach, okay, which he wrote 15 years later. So the bottom line is, uh, that was a bad time to live. And our hero, when he writes this form, he talks about the fact that when he was a kid, he remembers the massacres and all the rest of it. Now, he grew up with a father like that. Uh, if you know the career of the father, he ran away to Moravia. In other words, and I've talked about this, I can't remember, not that long ago. I, 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 I'm trying to remember in whose biography, also in the 1600s, a number of famous rabbis from Poland fleeing the Chmelnitsky business ran away to the next country over in Central Europe, which was the Habsburg Empire, and specifically in the Kingdom of Bohemia, which was the Habsburg Empire, and in the 1600s, the Kingdom of Bohemia was fairly large because it's the size today of the Czech Republic plus the whole big province of Silesia, which today is part of Poland. So without going into all the details, only those of you who are interested in geography will look up the maps. It was a, a nice little piece of land. And basically the Kingdom of Bohemia was composed of three areas, Silesia, Bohemia, and Moravia. And there were a lot of little Jewish communities all over Moravia. And as far as they're concerned, it's like 
uh, it's a little bit like a, like like New York in the forties and fifties. You could, I mean, if you wanted to be this type, you know, you could have a show, and somebody is running away from Europe from the Holocaust or survivors comes over here. He's like a Bucky Bashas, you know what I mean? Like he's a big Tamachacham, and some of these rabbis uh, didn't have the good fortune to become big Rosh Hashivas and stuff like that. And they became rabbis of synagogues in the Bronx. You know, in Brooklyn and wherever, like that. You know, that's how they created nothing, nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying the guy is bigger than the Steller, so to speak. And that's what happened with our hero. He was around in a bunch of little communities in Moravia. And he was in Nicholsburg, which was a Kosho community. And he ended up, as I say, in Frankfurt. But interestingly, by the 1670s, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, Poland had quieted down, the peace treaty had been signed. The uh, enemy uh, invaders had withdrawn without going through all the details. The Cossacks, the Russians, the Swedes, the Prussians, and all the rest of it. And uh, and our and and uh, never went back to Poland, where he died. So our hero is growing up during a chaotic period. Uh, he learns with the father, obviously. Uh, and he was a Talmud Chacham. He edit, edited, I, if I remember correctly, he edited the Birchas Hazevach and the Amunishmol and some of these other things, which means you have to know how to learn in order to do that. Uh, and he published them. And uh, he ended up as a young man, and he married a, a rich girl, I remember, from Frankfurt. But he end, he went back with his father to Poland, and he ended up in Vilna. Now, that means he's a chash of a balabas in Vilna because he has a rich father-in-law, and he engaged in business, and he knows how to learn. Here, he uh, came across, or he got into a fight with the Richie Riches. I don't, nobody knows exactly what it was, but boy, they were the worst type of the Richie Riches that I've talked about from time to time. And uh, they marched on him, and uh, he was thrown into jail. He says himself, in the introduction to the Kavayosha, into a Polish dungeon for four years. Think about what he just said. A Polish dungeon for four years. That's what the Jews did to him. Get it? These are who our people are when they're corrupted by wealth. And uh, eventually he got out, <coughs> and he ran away, and he came eventually to Frankfurt, naturally he ran away, and he, and one of his rebbeim, when he was young, and I've never understood this, was to be the famous Rebbe Yosef of Minsk. The reason I don't understand it is, our hero is supposed to be the student, and Yosef of Minsk is supposed to be the rebbe. And the story goes, and he admits it in the beginning of the Kaba Yashar, that he's plagiarizing a lot of what's in the book. They didn't have the, and, and I'm not, and I'm not saying in a bad way. According to what happened, he had a rebbe who wrote this uh, kabbalistic Musar book, as we would say today, full of stories and mices and things like that. But he died young, and he never published a book. And our hero was a student of his, and he had like a copy of the manuscript, and he rewrote it, you know, touching it up here. Lengthened it here, shortening it there. He says, I was Myrick, I'm a concert, and so forth, and published it as his own work called the Kavayashar, and it really took off. And the original work of the Rebbe wasn't published till many, many decades later, and wasn't as well written, and never took off. You've never heard of it. It's called Yesod Yosef. You've never heard of it. So it's funny the history of, of how books work. The student actually made the Rebbe's content more popular than ever would have been on its own. Because as we shall see, the Kavayosha is one of the most famous and popular books, most often reprinted books in Jewish history, which is really something. Uh, 
If I ever tell somebody, you ever heard of a three-horse Kaidenover? No, they think I'm talking about the Kaidenover Rebbe or something like that, right? Kaidenover is a town near Minsk. Uh, but uh, if you say you heard of the Kabayasha, oh, I heard of the Kabayasha, you know. So sometimes a person can become subsumed in his personal identity in, in that of the book, which really takes off and hits the charts. And that's what happened to our hero today. So he lived from 1650 to like 17, <coughs> excuse me, 1712, I think it was. You know, so it wasn't that long of a life, but um, but long enough for him to publish his book in Hebrew and in Yiddish and see it fly off the charts. So uh, as a Musser book. So it's just interesting how these things go because no one's heard of the guy, but everybody's heard of the safer. Now, um, after he got out of the jail, he ran <clears throat> back to Germany. Um, you have to understand at that time, I'm using the word Yakis. Yakis didn't exist. The German Jews and the Polish Jews really was the same. <coughs> the accent was a little different. Uh, the Minhagen were slightly different. The Yiddish was slightly different, but basically it was the same. And there was a lot of intercourse and interplay and intermarriage between Polish Jews on the one hand and Moravia and, 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 and German Jews, Rhineland on the other hand. You don't have this rigid distinction. That came later on in the 19th century with the rise of nationalism, the Jews sort of imitated the same nationalism and said this was a Galtziana and that was a Litvak and this was a Yeki and all that kind of stuff. Didn't used to be like that, particularly in the Tom Toma in the 17th century. Uh, the Jews tried to live their lives the best they could. All around them, Europe was constantly at war. I've told you that. Every single year in the 1600s and 1700s, there was a war going on somewhere in Europe. There really was, you know. I could show off and tell you, you know, where it was in this year and that year, but I'm not going to do that. And uh, if you're Jewish, you simply like ducked, you know what I'm saying? And you tried to live your life the best you could. And you tried to move wherever it was possible to, you know, the, you could make a living or something like that. And you hoped you didn't run into some kind of Cossack massacre. So in those years, from the 1650s on, Poland was like dangerous and Germany was safe. Later on, it was the other way around. You know, this is how the Gullus works. Okay, now, as I said before, our hero came to Frankfurt. Um, he had his father's him. His father died kind of suddenly at a rabbinical meeting. And uh, I'm talking about the Berkha Zezevach. And the son uh, devoted himself to, first of all, his, his rich father-in-law was in Frankfurt. So that means Parnassus was okay. Second of all, um, he put himself to publishing the father's works. Which indeed took off. The Amunah Shemul is a classic, and so is Berchus Zevach among Talmidei Chachamim. Uh, and then he uh, wanted to publish. He wasn't so young. I mean, he published it when he was in his fifties. This work that he had from his Rebbe that he re redid, right? He re I mean, he says this in the introduction. And if you uh, let me, I have in front of me my good old Kavayasha with the Nakudos that I bought just when it came out long ago. Now there are better editions. I mean, there's a Manukot. The Kavayasha is so popular, I'll say later, it's online Manukot, you know? It's online Manukot. Uh, that is to say, wiki text, you know? Uh, he says over here, um, where did I get the content from my book? Um, I wrote a safer 
to uh, lead them on the ways of life, on the Mayim Chaim. Kasherisi Mari Kadoshim, as I said from my Rebbeim, first of my father, and Mishara Bosi Gunarts, Basher Kibalti Yatsakti, Sharisi Derchatobi Yashimirav Muvak, and I had a Rebbe Muvak, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Hagon Manoch, Rabbi Yudu Yudel, that's the chief rabbi of Minsk, as I said before in Dubnov, of Bezin Minsk. Bishosisi Bitsamas Dvorov, and I drank his words thirstily. In other words, um, I, I, I uh, you know, remember what he said, what he taught us. There's parts over here that are literally plagiarized from him. But I added a little bit of some chisarti, and I sometimes edited it out a little bit. I did this so that they, their sips the same dose whichever. They should be alive even in their death. So I'm telling you this as a matter of what you call editorial honesty. I'm not really plagiarizing. I'm admitting that I'm taking, um, you know, f- from others, just reworking it. I'll call Perik, Perik, and I, and I, you know, therefore pray to Hashem that it should be Matzliach. So uh, it's very interesting that somebody writes like that. And as they say before, he suffered very heavily from these bad richy riches, and that's why um, the Kavayasher, I did it once, one, one year I read it as my Musser book, you know, because uh, the chapters are not long, but the only thing is everything's a quote from the Zohar, you know, he's always bringing the Zohar stuff. So you have to have an edition that has this, the translation of the Zohar into uh, Hebrew. Uh, I have an early one, which is in the back, I'm sure the later ones are in the front. Now I know... Uh, somebody in my shul had a couple of years ago, they translated Kaviyosha in English. I don't know how well they did it. Um, but I'm going to read to you a chapter he has on the Richie Riches, what he calls the Katsinim and the Nassim, because he saw firsthand what's going on over here. Loma Nikra Shmom Shal Roshim Nassim, why they called Nasis, which is a high honor. If he, if, he, if he conducts himself well, if the rich guy conducts himself well, then he's exalted, nasi, you know, say malamala, and his nesham also. But if he doesn't conduct himself well, nesim baruch, then there's a passing nesim baruch v'geshamayin, which means he's just like wind. You understand? Kasher onan kel yelech lo because the wind comes and goes, and after a while, you never know what's there in the first place. All these rich guys have their five minutes of fame, as we say today, and then they're gone. If he doesn't act right, the way a manig Yisrael should act, and if you don't take stuff off the Jews the way Moshe Armenu took stuff off of them, if he acts arrogantly towards them, piss him over and on. All these rich, rich guys just, you know, disappear from the scene. And their children and grandchildren aren't rich anymore. So knows they lose it all. And we see this happen to a lot of richy riches, he says. This trap, because they're so arrogant. And they uh, terrify the people in the community under them. And they themselves lived a very luxurious lifestyle. And they don't pay their share of taxes. Because that's what the rich used to do. They would use their positions on the on the boards of the directors of the communities to make sure that the tax burden fell on everybody else who couldn't afford it and not on themselves who could. That's just what I said. 
They always want to be first in any covet. And they always look like they're self-satisfied. They look like they're having a ball. They have no sympathy with the sufferings of the masses. Nothing ever happens bad to them, so therefore they don't feel bad. And the regular community, who after all come from Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, they're crushed and they're destroyed. They go around without clothes. They go barefoot, they have unclothed because they have to pay such heavy taxes. Which the officials of the community, who are the servants of the richy riches, um, ruthlessly take from them. And the community tax collectors, the Jewish community tax collectors, enter the houses of the poor, and they grab whatever they want for non-payment of taxes, and they leave the people there naked and without anything. And those that take their furniture, they take their clothes. These are these are the richy riches of yesterday. You wonder why I talk about them. They have public auctions where they sell them for a song. All they have left is not the bed, but the, the, the straw that where the, where the bed was. And therefore, they, they, they take away their blankets, they take away the things, they freeze to death in the winter. This is how our Jewish history went. And the poor people in the community. And by the way, when he says poor, it's like America with the, the tuition. He doesn't mean poor. He means the average Joe out there, we call middle class, who who gets killed by the you know the, the tuition payments and things like that. Uh, but it's much worse in the old country. And they sit and cry, each one in their corner. If the rich would only help out and pay their fair share of the taxes, then it wouldn't be so heavy on the Beninim and the Aniim. Okay? And he goes on to say, plus the richy riches steal embezzle from public funds. That they take money, like we say today, from the public funds, even though they don't need them, that's the point. You know what I mean? They're, they're rich. But they take the money from the public funds because they're the gabais of all these funds. And they use them to pay for weddings and give presents to their own children and uh, and, and sons and daughters and sons-in-law, daughters-in-law. Daughters-in-law. And this is Chomas and Yigiyakab. Now, he could say all this because at the time he wrote this, he was already hundreds of miles away from Vilna. So the guys who really messed him over and put him in jail for four years, couldn't touch him anymore. So he could say the truth. I'll say it again, it was Vilna. Okay? So you think Vilna was such a fantastic place. Right? And such a person, it, it is said in heaven, this is a guy who eats Jewish blood and Jewish flesh. Right? Goes on him be some almanus. And he's describing what happens in Shemayim. Then an angel precedes them when they die with all these clolas, vintolas and shmas, rachmon and lisan mancha delay, and so on and so forth. Therefore, he begs, okay? Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read you the paragraph to give you a flavor of what the, what the, uh, what the Kabbalah is like. This is chapter 9, what I'm reading. Al kinyiro sa'odam shumanigo parnas. Therefore, anybody who finds himself in a situation where he's a rich guy and he's a leader in the community, he has to be merciful and not cruel. 
and especially the broken vessels, namely the poor people who are helpless. Anim is interested in the Anim. Because if you don't treat them right, then angels who are Makatrig bring all kinds of Xeris rose on you. Now, you can be sure, in the 17th century particularly, the rich people say this, Bo, if God really liked them, he wouldn't make them poor. Like, like John Calvin, you know? And he tells the story from the Rizal. They were sitting in a field. And in that field was the, was the grave of the prophet Hosea. That's this week's Haftor, as I mentioned the other day. And the Ari was giving one of his sister Torah drushes. And in the middle of the Adrasha, that he said, according to the story, for God's sakes, let's immediately put together some money, and send that money to a certain person, an Oni, who's near us, who lives in this and this house, that's the name of the Oni. Because he's sitting in his house right now, the Arizal said, and complaining to God over his poverty and his mistreatment. And his cries, the cries of a poor man who's being, you know, tortured, are rising all the way to the Kisya covet. And God is angry at the whole city of Tzfas. Shame Rachmalov that nobody's having any pity on him. And God is going to destroy Tzfas, the Ari says, according to this story. And I hear the Karoz, the herald in heaven, running around announcing, So there's about to be a locust plague. They're going to eat up all the, the food. God is going to come by Kevin's eyes. No, no, no crops will be left. And we'll all starve to death. Therefore, let's immediately send some tzedakah, a substantial amount of tzedakah to this poor guy. Maybe we can be vata And each guy gave money, it says. And the read it says, gave the money to one of his students, Rabbi coin, and he said, run to that guy's house and give him the money, and that's what he did. Okay? And he saw this uh, Rabbi Yitzchak, this the poor man crying at the at the door of his house. Why are you crying? And uh, and the poor guy said, He had a Chavish Almayim. And you know, those days that you have to get from the well. And it broke, and he, and he can't afford... To uh, get an, uh, to buy another, uh, you know, barrel, a, a jar, and he doesn't know what to do because he's so poor. And he just gave him the money, and he was very happy. And he blessed him, and that's how they saved the city. But and while they were talking, right? Uh, and they saw in the distance a giant wind bringing a locust plague, and they all freaked out. And the Rizal said, Al Tiru, Botla Xera. And because what we just did, the Xera's bottle, So the wind, you know, like you see in the movies or something like that, you see a huge cloud of locusts, but instead of heading towards Tzvaz, it immediately made a left turn and went out to the Mediterranean Sea. Right? And therefore nothing happened. And that's why you have to take care of the poor. And uh, and and it goes on. Uh, you know, 
since it's a series of Meitshiva, I'll read the rest of this chapter to give you an idea of the flavor of the book. That God is the one who is their, their dwelling place. And uh, the Rebbe can always be found among the poor. This is like Baal Shem Tavism before the Baal Shem Tavism lived. Okay? That's why Chazal say, if you give a prud to the Tony, you get six brachas, and five to the brachas. But if you do it in a savor upon him yafis way, in a respectful way, you get more brachas, you get 11. Because the poor person is always in anxiety that he doesn't have any money to meet the bills. Uh, right? And. Um, What's he saying over here? He would like to get a, a toba and he can't. Bagiz is not a carvet. See, think about the winter time. He's describing life. The rich guy is in a warm, big, well built house. And he's like a king in a winter palace. And he's got a tanu shalokham. But Oni, not only does he live in a dwelling full of holes. He can't afford any any fuel like uh, you know, like we say today, no heat. And since he can't ever get warm, and you know this is in Europe, and the cold penetrates and breaks his nefesh, and that is you know it's biting cold. And when it rains, it's uh, it's full of leaks. So it's his life is a hell. Right? You see that they don't make a revolution. Many of the poor are just from and they accept it. And when Shabbos comes, and when Shabbos comes, and really you should have a nice meal, as we all know in Shabbos, and of course the Ani can't afford it, nevertheless the Ani goes to Shul and he thanks God for Shabbos. So look what a tzaddik he is. The rich guy can make a shidduch whoever he wants because he's rich. And the Ani doesn't have any money. He'll, he'll marry his children off to whoever he can. Even to a bum. And, you know, the the the, the, the chassam won't have a reich to reich yira. It's like throwing his daughter to a lion. But what else can he do? You know, he wants to marry his daughter off. And he sees... Um, this is really life. He's in of Roik Shabur Bito. And he sees his poor daughter, who he had no marry no choice but to marry up to this guy, and the guy's a wife beater, and she takes it because she's poor and you know she has no choice. She's stuck with this husband. Who can write down on paper the terrible tsar that this woman goes through and to her father goes to the only Sovel? So therefore Call Ani, if you are a poor person and you live through this life, you don't have to worry about Gehenna because you've got it down here. Okay? And therefore you have to take care of them and so on and so forth. So I'm simply trying to show you that, and he goes on to say, therefore it is a warning to the richie riches. Uh, that's an example that this is a Musar book, but it's very factual. It's very real. You know what I mean? In other words, it is full of, um, uh, the Kaviyash is Kuf Bay's 102 chapters. And it's full of mices. And a lot of the mice have to do with Shadim and Mesa with Talesim. And like I say, a lot is from the Arizal and from the, uh, what do you call it, the, the Zohar. And it's scary. That's why it was such a, best, such a bestseller. The women chopped it up. I'm serious. 
he published it in Hebrew and then in, in, in rabbinic Hebrew and then in um, Yiddish. And it, I, I think it was reprinted 50 times in Yiddish. Uh, you understand? Those, uh, everybody knows the Frum women from Eastern Europe is the Tenorena and the Kavayosher. In, you know, both in Yiddish, you know. And these are the real Frum books. There are a lot of mices there that are baloney that are not true. It doesn't matter. You know, there's a scandalous story he has about the Ramban's wife and all this stuff. They're not true. But uh, when I say it doesn't matter, but they were vividly told and they came part of the Jewish folklore. And I'll tell you again, that's the old Frumkite, where if you don't do something, he's going to describe how the Malachim are going to beat you up and how you're going to burn in hell, literally, and stuff like that. And uh, whoever reads the Kavayashar ends up screaming and crying, and a good time was had by all. This is the Frumkite of our ancestors, the Ashkenazic ancestors. Um, and a lot of stories end up among the Sephardim, but they just plagiarize in different in different Sephardish books also. The Kavayashar, therefore... Um, became one of the most popular books in Jewish history. It drives the non-from historians and folklorists and Maskilim crazy, and they always attacked the Kava Yasha, I understand why. And it's the opposite of rational and all that kind of stuff. It certainly is. But on the other hand, as I just read you from this chapter about the poor and the rich, he's spot on. His social criticism is a, is a bullseye. You understand? I mean, he told it like it was, and there was a lot of corruption in Jewish life. Now, He's not, you know, Vladimir Lenin or anything like that, but he calls for a frum uh, revolution that people should follow what the Torah said. And the Torah said that the rich people should take care of the poor, and the poor should act nice to the rich people. Not that the rich people should dump on the poor the way they used to in Europe. In America, people don't understand this. In Europe, where his time, they were uh, what's the right word? You know, people owned seats, and you couldn't sit in the rich guy's uh, area in shoal. And, you know, and you didn't have a seat, and you never got an aliyah, and it was just terrible, you know. They they, they, they walked all over you. Uh, why? Money talks. You understand? Money talks. And you couldn't mess with them, because obviously our hero must have messed with the, must have protested against something the rich did, which is why they had him thrown in jail. And let me tell you something. If he was there for four years, they did not figure he would live. You get it? I mean, he survived, and he said it was Sebrachim when it was all over, because we're talking about a Polish jail dungeon in the 1600s. So, you know, he himself experienced firsthand, you know, uh, the, the the suffering. But never, but he but he was resilient, you know, and um, and therefore, it's not like the other Moser books. The other Moser books are, you know, the Silsi Sharim and the Shari Chuba and that sort of thing. They're very from in the sense that they talk about Ruchnias and all that. Now, he does, but he also talks about a lot of social uh, injustices. And, you know, believe you me, the Richie Riches would rather have you read the Masil Sharm because you could talk about your Neshama and Zerizas and Zahiras and Mishka Hasidas. It's all theoretical. It's all very nice. To talk about what's really going on and who's got the money and who's in charge of the public funds and... Listen, this is the way it is now. It's always like that. You know, you go to yeshiva, to a to a school or something like that. You don't know what happened with the money. The board of directors runs run it. And they don't tell you how, how the money's being dispersed. Not really. And, you know, it's a nepotism. It's all this stuff that we see around us going on. The only thing is, what does the average person do? You have children to, 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 to get school, so you, just, you, know, you have no choice. You go along with it. 
but you know what, what 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 can you do but it's a you know it's a rich man's world in that regard and uh, there are good people that are rich like he talks about also he mentions that and they're you know they and they people who use their uh, wealth for the public good but there's a lot of the other types and Europe especially with a lot of the other types and therefore I think me myself and I I think that that's one of the reasons the the Kavayosha took off because Yes, they like the stories about the Shadim and the Mesim and the Talesim. And yes, they like the stories. I mean, I can't believe anybody read the the parts. There's so many quotes from the Zohar over there. And in the early editions, they didn't have translations from the Zohar. So how could the average guy understand what half the book's saying? It's in that funny Aramaic. You know what I mean? It's verbatim quotes from the Zohar. Uh, stories like the Rizal you can understand because it's written in Hebrew. Uh, but it didn't matter. A lot of these stories were, like I say, real zingers. And, um, and uh, you know, I was looking if he has anything in Yom Kippur. Not really. I myself happen to remember from, um, but he has a very interesting Hanukkah. I should really be doing this Hanukkah time because he said something like the Shamus is more Chashev than the nearest Hanukkah. And, uh, you know, is because he, he, he's real from, you know, so he said, don't, you know, don't, don't uh, misuse the Shamus. On the on the menorah and the Hanukkah menorah, um, but he has on all Shabbos and all these other kind of things, and I would say just in general that your Jewish education is not complete if you never read the Kavayasha. One time, go ahead and do it, especially now that it's Menukah. It's online. Notice that you know the like I say, you can Google. I saw before, uh, you know the whole wiki text and things like that. That tells you something. You see, now it's not written in language of the twentieth century. It's written in very scary language of the sixteenth century of the seventeenth century, and you know it's, it's these stories about the mason and all the rest of it are there to make your hair stand on end. That's that's the point, you know. If you don't scream after you read a a, a story or two, you're not normal. However, um, so what, you know, so what, and uh, if you if you, it, it's not too often that somebody becomes subsumed in his uh in in his book now he wrote some others for him he never took off anywhere i don't know you know some lumbish things whatever it's, it's not important because you know those are little details which if this was a seminar we could talk about it but for this purposes the other things that he wrote are not important the kabayashi was a home a grand slam home run and obviously he touched a button in the masses of claw Yisrael, and it became as i said before uh, one of the most popular works. Uh, not today, because it's 300 years later, 400 years later, and a lot of other stuff is written, and more in language of our time. But if you're interested in the classic Judaism of the early modern period, I don't think you can get a better example, literarily speaking, than the Kabayashi, because that's how people talk, that's how people thought. Okay? And he was super from, that's true, but that was considered a high virtue in that society, to be super from in that kind of a way. So that itself tells you a lot. Um, and so uh, he, he, he got lucky in the sense that, you know, he the man, the, the man and the time and everything came together. Now, there are a lot of anachronisms in there and things like this. He says the Ramban has a story, you know. The Pope says the Ramban. It's a Baba Master. Pope says the Ramban. Your drasha was published recently. Do a publishing <laughs> in the Ramban's time in the 1200s. You know, he doesn't care about that. Don't look to this 
for, you know, scholarly accuracy, anything like that. Look to it for zingers. You understand? And I'm sure over the ages, a lot of Pirkei leaders and things like that have stolen stories, you know, from the Kaviyashar and made their 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 kids' uh, hair stand and then give them nightmares and things like that. But as they say, a good time was had by all. Because the Kaviyashar nevertheless remains a very beloved work among Kal Yisrael. And that it tells you something itself. If you want to see the the mindset of our Ashkenazic ancestors, those who were Ashkenazic listening, uh, and not, you know, what you just read here and there, especially now with the Art Scroll era, and then you look at the Kabayosha and, and, and you see how he describes life. As I just showed you before, his description of the rich and the poor, um, who live side by side, and the rich don't do anything to alleviate the poor. Uh, think about that, by the way. You know, I have heat in my house, and you don't. Like, what the heck is that? If that happened in Baltimore, and I know a case or two when something like it happened, immediately people came together and got him heat. I mean, you can't live in Baltimore in the winter without heat, right? And Kalvachomer in, in Northern Europe. So how could somebody be like that, that I'm okay and I have plenty of wood and all the rest of it, and the guy down the block who's poor is, is freezing to death? I mean, you know, how, how, do, how, do you, how do you be like that? The answer is you can be like that. You understand? You can be like that. So uh, it was a cruel world once upon a time. And this is why Chazal say that one of the people who go burn straight in hell is Parnas Shematel Amy Yisrael at Ziba Shem Shemaim. I think that's how it puts it over there. And uh, the Ramban calls them Malki Hodu. They walk around like Maharajas, you know, because I'm rich. They have everybody kiss, kiss my fingers and so forth. But uh, but the Kaviyasha told it the way it was. Anyway, um, that's. The main part, there's a lot of scholarship on where he got his stories from and all the rest. Of it. You don't need to know that. You know, it's not a seminar. Um, you know, which folklore did he get it out of and all the rest of it. A lot of it comes from the Zohar. A lot of it. Um, and, of course, he is a Talmud of a Talmud of a Talmud of a Talmud of the Rizal. That's who he is. So, And the Rizal died in the 1570s. He's born in 1650, not that long later. So he's coming up from that influence. And at his time... Nothing from the Rizal had been published. It was all Kisvi Ari. And so a lot of it was, you know, by word of mouth. This is the culture that was that was around at that time. Anyway, um, that gives you an insight. If you're interested in what I said today, you'll look online. And you look up the Kabayashar. Like I say, the wiki text. You can see the whole book inside. Menukad. And uh, and you can read it for yourself in Hebrew. I didn't even look if the Kabayashar is online in English. Maybe it is. Um... I can't say that about any other book from that time. You can't tell me this is true of, of other Sfarm from the 1600s. Not that I can think of. Okay? Uh, certainly not the Lumjan stuff, but even the you know popular literature of the 1600s. As I said before, the only thing that approaches it is the, is the um, Santorena. Both of which were major cultural landmarks in Jewish history, and both of which were made fun of by people you know, as uh, non-rational and this and that and the other bummises, but uh, really spoke to the heart of Klai Yisrael, um, you know, in days past. Anyway, once again, I want to wish the Elvan family that the Nisham Shavaliyah, I think it's Friday, it was Abba Menachem Ben Yitzhak Yehuda, Manny Elbaum, and I know he's no Lomemis, but, you know, he's obviously, uh, if he saw how his descendants are acting, he'd be very uh, pleased. And that's the best you can say for somebody.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.